I'm going to read from Romans chapter 9. I'm just going to read a couple verses and then um, we're going to go back to the Old Testament and then we're going to come back to the New Testament again. We're all over the place. So we are really going to have to think and focus and, and really pay attention. Um, and I hope that we do that all the time. But just so you know, today's going to be a lot of back and forth, a lot of reading and stuff. So I've entitled this message, The Exodus and God's Sovereignty and Salvation. For those of you who are visiting, what we, we were doing, we were working our way through the book of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And when he says the law and the prophets, he means the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament. And so we're taking kind of a rabbit trail from Matthew to go through the Old Testament real quickly and see how... Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection fulfill what was going on in the Old Testament. And we're not hitting every single story. We're just hitting high points to kind of get through it in nine weeks, which is incredibly fast. We spent 11 weeks on the Beatitudes. So the entire Old Testament, nine weeks. So we're going really quickly. And today um, we're going to focus on the entire book of Exodus or the general idea of, of, of that, the book of Exodus. Um, or I should say more specifically the first half because we, we'll do the, the second half next week. So, if you got a Bible, go ahead and stand in honor of the Word of God. And we're going to read um, three verses from the book of Romans chapter 9 beginning in verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the daunting task of teaching this and unpacking these truths that are either going to be glorious to us or they are going to be bitter to us and turn us away. That's a big responsibility. And so I need you to come and help me do this by your spirit. Help me to teach this. God, please don't let this message stop with my ability or my, my rhetoric or, or any way that I can explain things. But Father, I, I'm, I'm begging you that your spirit would come and help us to get this this morning because we don't, we don't want to get this on our own. We, we can't get this on our own. And so I need you to, to help me now. And, and I pray that you will just um, mold hearts and, and love on us this morning. God, be patient with us. As we approach your word. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. Amen. So. I want to talk about worship for a second. One of the common misconceptions in our culture. Especially in American Christianity. Is that when the church gets together. When Christians get together. Especially on a Sunday. That there are two different parts to the, ser to the service. There's the worship. And then there's the preaching. And, and so the, the worship, of course, we, we generally think consists of the music and singing and we put the words up. And, and then there's the preaching, which is where you guys sit down and I teach from the Bible and you listen. Um, That's generally what we think. This is a false dichotomy. That's not the truth. Singing is no more worship 
than your sitting and listening to the Word of God and being attentive to what's being taught. Um, going to bed early on Saturday night so that you can be, be focused on hearing God's Word and learning is no less worship than singing songs. Those are all ways that we worship God. Um, scripturally speaking, our lives should be lived out as worship to God. That means that we sacrifice ourselves to the Lord daily in our jobs, in our homes, in our schools, in our hobbies, in our travels, at the grocery store, and so on. Everything that we do is supposed to be an act of worship to God, giving glory to God. Now that means, when you think about that, that means that you're going to have to be thinking for the most part, thinking deeply about everything that you're doing, about everything that your body, your, your natural mindset wants you to do and says, hey, do this, do this, this would be fun, this would, be, this would make sense. You think about those things and then say, okay, but how would God have me approach these things? All the time, this does not come natural to us and that's part of the, the Holy Spirit living inside of us and, and so we have to think about what do I want to do? And then compare that to how would God actually have me act and approach this? Not that we change what we do necessarily, but we change how we do it and the motivation for it. And so when the church gathers like this on Sunday or Wednesday when we get together and we eat and we talk and discuss scripture, it's no different. We don't worship and then hear preaching. This is all, everything that we're doing is worship, and as a matter of fact, when the people of God gather around the Word of God, this is when we get the clearest picture with our minds of who God is. And only then, once we know who God is really, can we actually worship Him for who He is. And, and so, if you've come today, and, and we haven't sang any songs yet, but if you've come today, and you haven't spent a lot of time in God's Word but you worship, then the, the, the conclusion we have to come to is that you don't know the real God. You've just invented a God in your mind. Think about, well, I think God would be like this, or I think God would be like that. And then you worship God, praise God for who He is, but you haven't read the truth about God. And so, in essence, you're worshiping a God that you've invented in your own mind. You've broken the first two commandments because you've made an image of God in your mind and you have, you have a God other than the real God. And so we... We have to know when we come to God's Word, we learn who God is, and then we worship Him for who He is. Um, worship is not about singing songs necessarily. That is a part of worship, but it's not just that. And it's definitely not about getting lost in a, a moment of sounds and lights and emotions and, and things and evacuating your mind mentally so that you can just have an emotional experience of happiness or nirvana or tingling or warmth or, or whatever, the, the warm fuzzies, that's not worship. That, that's actually a pagan concept that's crept into the American church. Um, biblically, we're not called to evacuate our minds and just get lost in a moment of worship. Scripturally, we should be thinking Deeply and clearly and, and, and rightly about who God is. And then we worship God because of who He is. So we have to think a lot and take this stuff in. And, it, and it's hard and we deal with issues that are kind of hard to grasp about God. And, and it takes a long time. But we, we learn who God is and we think and we dwell about what we know about God to be true. And then we worship Him because it's true. 
It's not about emotions. It's not about what we feel. It's not about what makes us feel good or what makes us happy. It's about what we know to be true. And so we aren't called to just throw our heads back and close our eyes and just get lost emotionally. We are to think and acknowledge. We we discover who God is as He's revealed Himself to us in His Word. Then we know that to be true because His Word says it. And then we worship Him because of what because of who His Word says He is. So we worship as scripture says, in spirit and in truth. And if you're not worshiping in truth, you're worshiping a false God. And so we, that's just a little bit about worship. We have to know who God is. And, and it's not about what you feel or think. It's about what you know to be true. And then living that out. Whether that's singing songs or whether it's going to the grocery store. I'm doing this because I know who God is and how he would have me to act. So... To worship God means that we lay aside our, our carnal desires, our natural inclination, and we, we bow or we stand or we live our lives in awe of who He is. And when we read His Word, we begin to see a picture of a God that is awesome. And not just awesome as, as the, the word that we throw out all the time, but we worship Him because He is awesome. We don't worship God because of what He can do for us or what He has done for us. Only we, we start with who he is. I want to read you this quote from Jonathan Edwards. This is from a book called Religious Affections, which these Puritan writers, they're really hard to read. Um, and so I'll read this. And if you're thinking, I'll kind of unpack it because this stuff is, it, this is just hard to read. So he says, the first objective ground of gracious affections is the transcendently excellent and amiable nature of divine things as they are themselves. And not any conceived relation they bear to self or self-interest. So what he's saying there is if, if you are going to truly love God, the foundation for that love or gracious affections is, or it has to be, that you love God just because of who He is first. Just because He's God. Just because of how He's revealed Himself. And this is who He is. And I worship you because of who you are. Not what I can get from you. You're not a candy machine. I worship you because you are God and you deserve worship. That's what He's saying. And so it doesn't matter ultimately how He relates to us or what He can do for us. It's really just because He's God. He deserves worship. Now you're probably wondering what all that has to do with the Exodus and what I read. I'm glad you asked. Because today, we are going to learn about one of my favorite truths in all of Scripture. This is, for me, this is so great and so grand and so big, even though I'm still learning it. And, and it's, it's really hard. Um, this truth is difficult to swallow. And so, we have to be patient with people when we teach these things. This is not something that we come together and we just say, you get it or you're going to hell. We, we, don't, we don't believe that. This stuff takes time. To get this and to walk with the Lord and spend time in the Word and get this even though it is a glorious truth. This truth is one of those things that when you read this and you discover this in Scripture, you tend to kind of keep it quiet because you're afraid if you say it, you're going to make somebody mad. Um, I have battled on, on, on how to introduce this and teach this because it is so 
controversial it seems like in our day. If you've taken the, the new members class, we've talked about this and we've had some exchanges about this. And what I say is you don't have to believe this to be a member of our church, but just know this is how I'm going to preach and this is how I'm going to teach because I believe it's what the Bible says. And, and it's my prayer that because God is is compassionate and slow to anger. He's gracious. He's patient that he walks with us through these things and he guides us through them. And so this is not something that we just have to say, well, you know, I got it. Oh, it's easy because it's not easy to take this, um, especially as 21st century American Christians. This is scary for me to teach because it can be taken so wrongly. It can be misconstrued, misunderstood, um, in the past, when Christians were, were less um, individualistic and less selfish, they loved doctrines like this. But because in America we push this individualism of Christianity, then we come to, to the Bible and we say, well, how can this specifically benefit me? How does this help me? How does this make me happy? How will this help me tomorrow? And so a lot of times this doesn't go over well because honestly this, doesn't, this truth doesn't it doesn't ask you how you feel, what you think. It doesn't ask you what your parents taught you. It doesn't ask you what your last pastor taught you. It's simply the truth about the nature and the character of God. And so we come to this. I come to this soberly, solemnly, scared to death. But I know that's what the Bible says. And, 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 I, and, and, and so I must teach it. We teach the entire Bible. And so this truth is this. God... Is sovereign. God is sovereign. Now, when I when you hear that, you agree. Absolutely. God is God is sovereign. Yes, but when I start reading and I start teaching, you may hear some things that you're not crazy about because this stuff is hard. But remember, true worship of God or, or love for God must be built on the foundation of who He is first. How he has revealed himself in scripture first. And then from that, we begin to see, well, hey, that, that works for me. That, that benefits me and I'm, I can have eternal life. God has loved me. And so, but we start off with who he is, not how he makes us feel. And once again, it really doesn't matter how you feel or what your opinion is or my opinion is. It, it doesn't matter. This is not going to change. I will live and I will die and this book will keep on going. Just like Jesus says, not one word of this will pass. And so all that matters is what the Bible says, period. So my prayer is that as we learn today that we are driven to worship. Because a lot of times the reason we don't live lives that are laid down in worship to God all the time is because we really don't, we don't realize how big He is and how small we are. We, we kind of get this idea that, that, man, you know, God's doing His part and I'm doing my part and we're just trucking along me and God. That's not how it works. And so we, we don't worship because we feel like we are adding to God or helping God out or, or serving God in a manner that He needs us to help Him. And, and that's not how it works. And so that's why I started off talking about worship is because I hope that as we learn today that our worship will be amplified 10,000 times over because of who God is. Not because, and, and that doesn't mean I'm going to lift my hands higher when we sing, I'm going to close my eyes harder or I'm going to sing louder. It just means that everything that you do in your life will be driven by the, by the nature and the character of who God is first and foremost. And then we build on that but it starts with the fact that God is God and He deserves our worship. Because 
from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. That's, that's where we're getting. And so, I said that God is sovereign. That means He has supreme and ultimate power. He is in complete and total control of everything in the universe at every moment of time from eternity past to eternity future all at once in this moment. All the time. He has control of everything. That's what I mean when, when I say God is sovereign. See, we worship a massive God. So much bigger than we can even conceive. The only thing we can do is, is approach His word with fear and trembling. Like Isaiah says, tremble at His word and, and say, It's hard for me to grasp God, but this is what you said. And so I've just got to take it and I've got to worship you because of it. And so we worship a big, a big God. But a lot of times we think we are in control and we are not in control. We, we think we're, we're helping him out. You know, I've got this God and we're not. So I read from Romans 9 and I read about Pharaoh and a quote spoken to Pharaoh. It says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, this is a quote from the book of Exodus. And so that's why I wanted to talk about it because we're learning from the Exodus. Um, And basically what it says is what it says. The reason that God raised Pharaoh to power was to display his power, God's power, in Pharaoh to Pharaoh and make his name, God's name, be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. That's why he done it. So I want to look at the Exodus and see kind of what's going on there. And it'll help us understand what Paul is saying here. Um, for those of you who don't know, the word Exodus just means the, the mass the, the mass leaving departure of a large group of people. So the book of Exodus is about the mass departure of a, the, a large group of the Hebrew people out of Egypt where they were in bondage to Pharaoh. Now, we don't have time to read the whole book of Exodus today, so I'm just going to walk through this really quickly, the general idea up until the end of the the Exodus, not the book. So, we talked last week about Abraham and the covenant God made with Abraham. Abram had uh, Isaac, his son. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Jacob had 12 sons who, who became the 12 tribes of Israel. They sold one of the sons, Joseph, into slavery in Egypt because they didn't like him. He had these dreams. He was kind of cocky, saying, you guys are going to bow down to me, even though he was younger. They sold him into slavery. Um, When he gets bought into slavery, he comes to power in the house of Potiphar. And then he gets put in prison again. He comes to power in the prison. He's over the jail. He predicts the dreams of Pharaoh. Then he gets exhausted again to power to where ultimately, by the end of, or by Genesis, he is... The second in command in all of Egypt, directly under Pharaoh. There's Pharaoh, then there's Joseph. He has all power. He only answers to one man in the whole world. So by the end of Genesis, um, Joseph's family has been brought to Egypt because there was a famine. And Joseph had predicted that the famine would come. They had stored up food. Joseph's family gets brought to Egypt from through a lot of different circumstances. Um, and if you, if you haven't read that, go back and read that. But what I want to get to is that by the end of Genesis, Joseph dies. And by the, the beginning of the book of Exodus, there's a new Pharaoh. It's been years have gone by. And they don't know who Joseph is. They've, it's been so long that the story of Joseph is long gone. 
And so now you've got this new Pharaoh and this group of people called the Hebrews who have been multiplying, getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the Pharaoh says, this group of people, they're not Egyptians, they're Hebrews, and they're getting bigger. They're going to take us over if they get too big. And so we need to make them our slaves. And so that new Pharaoh enslaves the children of Israel. He decrees that all the male babies should die. First of all, he just tells the the Hebrew midwives to kill the babies. They say no. And so he says, all right, well, let them be born. And if it's a boy, after a while, just throw it in the Nile River. And so that's what they started doing. Throw these babies in the Nile River. Um, There was one Hebrew woman who had a child and she decided she was going to rebel. And so she hid her son. When he was, I can't remember, maybe three months old, she decided she's going to put him in a basket and put him in the Nile River to float down the river. That hopefully she would preserve his life. This boy's sister watches the basket go down the river. And it doesn't go far until the daughter of Pharaoh sees it caught in the weeds. And so she goes and gets this basket, opens it up. There's a baby. Hey, there's a little baby here. I'm going to keep it. Well, this baby's sister's over here and is like, hey, you want me to go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse that baby and raise it? Yeah, you better go do that. So she goes and gets this baby's mother to come and nurse this baby, raise this child. And she gets paid to do it by Pharaoh's daughter. So Pharaoh's daughter pays this child's mother to raise her own child. So she nurses him and ultimately he's raised up in the palace of Pharaoh as sort of as an Egyptian. But he knows that he's not an Egyptian and the Pharaoh's daughter names this child Moses. Moses is raised in Pharaoh's house. Moses, as he gets older, sees his people are being mistreated. They're enslaved. And so one day he sees an Egyptian hit a Hebrew. He goes outside. He gets angry. He kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. Then they find the body and and it's kind of exposed that he killed this Egyptian. And so he flees to a place called Midian. He goes to Midian and he marries a woman named Zipporah. He lives there for a long time. After he's been there for a long time, this is when God comes. We've heard the story of the burning bush. God speaks to Moses through a burning bush and tells him, I want you to be my man, my spokesperson, to go back to Egypt and set the people free. We all, we've all heard the, the song, Let My People Go. This is where that comes from. Moses says, I'm not a good speaker. Ultimately, God says, okay, I'll send Aaron with you and Aaron will be your spokesperson. And so they go back to Egypt to get the Hebrew children. And every time they go to Pharaoh and they say, let them go, he says, no, God sends a plague. And then they go back, let them go. He says, no, God sends a plague. Let them go. He says, no, God sends a plague. Ten times until ultimately after the tenth plague and the death of every firstborn child in Egypt, the Hebrews are allowed to leave. Then Pharaoh changes his mind again, goes after him, and that's where they cross the Red Sea. The water caves in on the Egyptians, and they drown and die. So that's the gist of that Exodus part of the book of Exodus. So the question is, why? Why, why is this story in here? When we read this, we know that because of the 10th plague, there was instituted the feast of the Passover. And we can look at that and, and see this, this lamb slain for the, the people. And because of the death of the lamb and the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, that the people are, are set free or are, are not killed. They escape death. And so we can see that. But honestly, if you look at all of the other institutions that God sets forth in the Old Testament, God could have just said, I want you to have a feast of the Passover. Kill a lamb. Do this with his blood. Do this, do this, do this. And this is a picture of what's going to happen. And then Jesus would come and live and die on the cross. And his blood would have been shed for the forgiveness of sins. And we could have seen that. 
So, so why did the Hebrew people have to go through the, the captivity and why did the Egyptians have to go through all the plagues and stuff before being released? That's the question I'm trying to answer when I read this stuff. I'm sure that we would all agree, I hope that we'd all agree, that those that story didn't just happen by accident. If God is sovereign, there are no accidents. So, so why? Why the plagues? If God is in complete control, then the whole story took place for a reason. Now we can see a foreshadowing of redemption where God's people are in bondage and the man of God comes to set them free. And we can see that and we see Jesus coming to set us free from bondage to sin. But that could have happened without all of this other stuff. Why did it happen the way it happened? When you read these Old Testament stories and you're trying to figure out the full significance and why they are the way they are, you, it sometimes helps to go to the New Testament and see if that story or those characters are mentioned directly in the New Testament. And then if the New Testament inspired authors mention the story and they kind of have exegeted the story, then you, you just want to go with that. You don't want to invent your own interpretation. Say, well, I think it means this. No, if they said that's what it means, that's what it means. You just take it. Yes, thank you, God, for helping me with my sermon. So we go to them and we let, we, we let the Bible do its own interpretive work. In 1 Peter it says, no prophecy of Scripture ever came by the interpretation of man. That means we don't come to the Bible and say, we read it and say, well, you know, what do you think it means to you? We don't do that. We say, what does it mean? What does God say when He wrote this? What does it mean? And so... We let the Bible just do its own work. It's really simple. It's time consuming, but it's simple. You just let the scripture interpret the scripture. It's easier than just trying to invent a story or a a life application lesson from the Bible in which we usually read ourselves into it. And we say, well, you know, so the moral of the story is what is your basket in your life that you need to be crammed into so that you can float down the Nile River of your life and escape the evil of your life. You know, that's not there. The story is not about you. It's about... Moses and redemption and, and the story is all about Jesus. So how do we come to this story and say, what is God doing here? Why did it happen this way? So we read from Romans 9. So if you've got a Bible, and it'll be up here if you don't have one, flip back to Romans 1. And we're going to work to Romans 9 and see why Paul says this. In Romans 1 verses 16 and 17, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. These two verses are the thesis statement of the entire book of Romans, or at least up until chapter 11. So... Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. And then he begins to unpack the gospel systematically through every chapter, through chapter 11. So the rest of chapter 1 is about our fallenness, our sinful nature. That God has revealed himself in the world in creation. We can see the things that we need to see about God, but we don't want to believe the truth. And And we will worship pretty much anything under the sun except for God because we are wicked and sinful people. And God has given us over to that. And so we don't worship God. And then chapter 2 says that no one's without an excuse. Everybody sees it, and so nobody has an excuse. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. Nobody has an excuse. We will all be judged justly 
for how we or what we do with what God has given us. Then chapter 3, it says we learn that God is both righteous or just and the one who justifies us by faith. He's, He's righteous and he also makes us righteous if we have faith in Jesus so that nobody can boast about being a believer. Nobody can boast about being saved. God is the one who saves and he is the, the saver. He's done all the work for us. Then in Romans 4, he kind of unpacks that, that Abraham was justified by faith, we learned last week, before he was circumcised. And then God gave the, the sign of circumcision to show that from Abraham would be this promised people. Those who are justified by faith and uncircumcised, Gentiles, and those who are, the Jews, all being justified by faith. And it comes to us if we believe in Jesus as our Savior. Then in Romans 5, we learn that because of the death of Christ, we are at peace with God. It's done. We're at peace with God. He's at peace with us because of what Christ has done for us. We're born sinners. But because of faith, God will save us and justify us. And we learn that the law was given to show us how bad we really are. And then it gives us a standard of how to live. And we see that again in chapter 7. In chapter 6, the question is asked, well, should we just keep on sinning? If, if our sin shows the grace of God, then let's just keep on sinning so that everybody can see how much grace He has. And He says, by no means. Don't keep on sinning. You are either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. And so he unpacks that in chapter 6. Then chapter 7 says the law doesn't condemn us anymore. We're not under the law as in to be condemned, but we do have a standard to live by. We still live a way that pleases God because we are justified. And then in Romans 8, it says that because the law doesn't condemn us anymore and because Jesus, who is Lord of everything, has justified us. He doesn't condemn us. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. If you are a believer, there's no condemnation. Your sin is paid for. And nothing can condemn us anymore. Even if we are persecuted and killed, we are still victorious and more than conquerors in those things through Christ. That brings us to Romans 9. After all of that gospel explanation that Paul gives... He gets really, really serious. And listen to how Romans 9 starts off in verses 1 through 5. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What Paul says, I could wish that I were accursed, anathema, cut off from Christ. What he's saying is, I wish that I could go to hell so that the Jews would believe. Because my kinsmen, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We can look now. Jews, Orthodox Jews, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're still waiting for a, for a Messiah. And, and so Judaism is this apostate religion that started off as God's people and now they do not believe. And Paul says they had everything in the Old Testament. Why don't they believe? I, wish, I almost wish that I could just go to hell for them. Because they're going if they don't believe in Jesus. So that brings up a problem to Paul's readers. 
Because last week we learned about the covenant that God made with Abraham. And how God promised to bless Abraham's offspring and, and curse those who cursed them. And that they would get this, this land forever. And there would be an everlasting throne of dominion forever. But it's not happening that way because the Jewish people don't believe in Jesus. They're dying and going to hell every single day. And Paul's saying, look, they're, they're not believing. They were God's chosen people. He gave them all this stuff and they don't believe. So either God lied or we have misinterpreted what's going on. Because if God made a promise, he's either scratched it and started afresh with a new promise, which means he didn't hold up his end of the old, old promise. The old God didn't come through on his deal. He lied. His word failed. His word is no good. We don't have to believe anything he says. If, if God has broken His covenant, then Romans 8 is of no use to us. There is condemnation. We will be tortured and we will die someday without hope because God can't keep His word. We can't trust Him at all. So has He failed? Has God made a covenant and then just didn't keep it? Look how He answers. Verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are his children are all, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. We read that last week. This is Paul's explanation as to why God's word hasn't failed. He hasn't let down his Covenant. He hasn't failed because he never promised or covenanted that every single Jewish born person of the flesh would be a part of his people. He never said that. He just said offspring. And we learned last week that that word offspring was singular, talking about Jesus. All those who are in Christ are God's people. They are children of Abraham. And we learned that Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised. And then given the sign of circumcision so that he could be father of all of the children of the promise, whether Jew or Gentile. All of those who had faith. And then Paul goes on to explain in verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. So this is the promise to Abraham. God promises that Sarah will have a son. Now if it's simply by birth, if it's just flesh, then that means it's Isaac and Ishmael. Remember, Ishmael was a son of Abraham. He was Abraham's offspring, but, but it isn't. Because remember, God sent Ishmael and Hagar away. Go away, you're not, you're not my people. And th- that we look at Ishmael as the father of the current Muslim nation. So it was through the promised son Isaac that the offspring would come. The child of the promise, not just flesh. Anybody can have an Ishmael. If you sleep with a woman, you can have an Ishmael. But only God can promise a barren woman that she's going to have a son. Only God can give a man who's 99 years old and a barren woman a son together. It wasn't natural. It was a miracle. So he's the son of the promise. But Paul assumes that we might come up with another argument because when we hear this, we say, well, that makes sense. Abraham and Isaac, they were married. They, or Abraham and Sarah, they were married and they had Isaac. And so, of course, it's Isaac. It's the Jews. It's still natural born people. But look how he, he goes on to explain that it's not just that in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here's where we get into the meat of this passage. If, if Paul's explanation of the promised son Isaac was not enough to prove that, that God's intentions in his covenant with Abraham were, were, were not just about flesh, then surely this clears it up for us. Because Isaac had two sons. Isaac and Rebekah. One man, one woman. They had two sons. By all accounts, twins. Is what we would, we would, we would consider them twins. They were born from the same union. They were born at the same time. Although... The story goes that Esau was born first and Jacob came out holding on to his, his heel, his ankle. And that's why he's named Jacob because he was a heel grabber. So they were born at the same time except for Esau was born slightly before. And so in that order, Esau will become the one who carries on the covenant, carries on the family name, carries on the promises of God because he's the older but look at verses 11 and 12 again. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, that's God, she was told the older will serve the younger. So this is, this is where we get the doctrine of unconditional election. They were not born. They had not done anything good or bad. And although, and, and, and God switched their roles. They were they had never heard the gospel. They had never heard the truths of God. They didn't have an opportunity to say, yeah, I believe it or no, I don't. God said, the older will serve the younger. Because that's what is going to happen. That's it, That settled it for them. So their roles were reversed. And it wasn't because Jacob was a skilled, or Esau was a skilled hunter. It wasn't because Jacob was a, a heel grabber and a cheat. It was because God said it would be that way. And, and the purpose is clearly spelled out in verse 11. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of one person being good or bad. Not because they had anything in them that would make them useful. But because of Him who calls. That's God. God calls. God says, this is how it's going to be. This is who will be my people. I have chosen this one and not that one. And that settles it. God says who His people will be. Not our deeds. Not being good. Not being useful. Not being nothing. It's God. And then verse 13, He quotes from the book of Malachi to drive in the point further that God has loved Jacob and hated Esau. And if you don't like the word hate, go read Malachi 1 and you can kind of see pretty clearly how God feels about Esau and his people. So... So Paul says all this, and then he assumes another question. And some of you in here, if you're like me, when I first read this, you're thinking this same question in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That is, is this not unfair? Is it not unjust for God to decide before they're either before they're born, before they've done nothing good or bad, whether or not they will be His chosen children or not? I mean, fair would be if God sat back and said, here it is, you know, have your, have your pick and whoever makes it to me will be my people. That would be fair, right? But this says that God has a purpose in election and that he decided long ago who would believe and who wouldn't. So is there injustice on God's part? 
This just doesn't sound like the God I know. This doesn't sound like the God I was taught about in Scripture. Is this not unfair? Is there any injustice on God's part? And the verse ends, by no means. By no means. Is there injustice? By no means. Is it not unfair? By no means. Absolutely not. There's never any injustice on God's part. By His very nature and His character, God cannot be unjust. If we think this is unjust, then we should change what we think justice is to fit this, not try to coax God into fitting into our tiny little brains about what is fair and unfair. He can't be unjust. If He's unjust, He's not God. So... Paul goes on to show how and why this is not unfair. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is the explanation for why God is not unjust when he chooses. And the statement that Paul chooses to explain this is what God said to Moses when Moses said, can I see your glory? And and, and so we learn from that that that, it, that God's, the essence of God's glory and the essential nature of His character is that He will have mercy on whomever He wills. He will have compassion on whomever He wills. And, and it's not about anything that we could help Him decide. It's, it's not about what He... What, he doesn't take counsel with us and say, Hey, you know, Paul, what do, you, what do you think I should do here? God doesn't do that. He just does. He does what He does. He doesn't ask me. He doesn't ask you. He doesn't ask anybody. He doesn't take counsel outside of Himself. He he doesn't ask us what would be fair by our standards. He simply does as He pleases. I'm going to read you this from Daniel chapter 4. This is Nebuchadnezzar. And I put it up there. At the end of the days, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? See, God does what He wants because He's God. We are just humans. We are accounted as nothing. The fact that He would save any of us should drop us to our knees because He is so holy and we are so sinful. But see, we're typically taught that our salvation is all about you and you just did so good and just great job. You're you're just doing so good. And man, God is, is so happy to have somebody like you on his team. Finally, God's got somebody that's worth something to help him out. And we get cocky about that and, and we don't understand this. But see, God is God, not us. We're not God. We can't give him counsel. We can't give him advice. We just learn who he is and we worship him. So Paul goes on in verse 16. So then... It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So see, your salvation has never been, nor will it ever be, dependent on on your own free will or or how how you chase after God when it says exertion. That's literally running. Like I'm running, I'm just trying to get to God. God, it says it's not about that. It's not dependent on anything except for God's free mercy given. Praise be to God for our salvation. So that brings us to Pharaoh. Full circle to the Exodus. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Paul says, For, for the scripture says to Pharaoh. So that shows us that this statement that he's quoting from the Old Testament about Pharaoh and about his role in the Exodus story is proof and supports what he's been saying, that God does whatever he wants to do. He has total control of everything that's going on in history and that God's, that God's role in the Exodus somehow upholds this sovereignty. And so he, 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 he quotes Exodus 9.16. So now flip to the book of Exodus. Chapter 9. And it'll be up here. You don't have to turn it out. I'll just read it out loud. So, I'm going to read this. This is God telling Moses what to say to Pharaoh. Exodus 9, beginning in verse 14. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up. To show you my power, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So this is before Moses goes back to Egypt. And, and God is preparing Moses for this very first encounter with Pharaoh. And he tells him that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Uh, I'll read that in just a second. And, and, and so what he's saying in this is, is that I've raised you up for something. Special Pharaoh. It says in verse 14, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. Now when I read this time, I don't know about you guys, when I read for this time, I think, well, was there other times? Absolutely, there were other times. And so we, 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 this just happens, um, I think I said that this was before he went to Egypt. This is after he had already been in Egypt. This is the seventh of ten plagues. So he's already been there. So there have been other times. So flip back to chapter 4. This is where it starts. This is, now we're back to before he goes to Egypt. In case you were confused. So, this is before he goes to Egypt. Look at verse 21 of chapter 4. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So, this is before he goes, and God is preparing Moses for this first encounter, and he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. We think about the Exodus. Why did all that stuff happen? Because Pharaoh wouldn't let him go. Why wouldn't he let him go? Because God was going to harden his heart. Once again, seems kind of unfair, doesn't it? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. Remember, God is God. He does what He wants to do. Now, I'm just going to flip through this and read these. And these are not up here. Um, chapter 7, verse 13. This is the first time Moses went to him. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 22 of chapter 7. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. 8.15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 19, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. 8.32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. 
9.7 And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. 9.12 But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So this brings us back to where we are in this quote. And God has told Moses to tell Pharaoh, I could have killed you a long time ago and cut you off from the earth, but for this purpose... I've raised you up and kept you alive for this very purpose. To show you my power so that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. So all this drama in the Exodus, all this Pharaoh, we let him go? No, Pharaoh, we let him go? Send a plague, send a plague. All this stuff is orchestrated by God himself so that his name would be proclaimed. In the earth, that's the reason for everything is that God's name would be proclaimed. He did this for his own glory. And if you continue in the Exodus, there are six more references to God hardening the heart of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, which ultimately leads to the Egyptians being drowned in the Red Sea. Now, Paul uses this reference as a, as a support for the sovereignty of God in the election and the salvation of His people. We read verse 18 of Romans 9 that says, So then He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. It doesn't depend on you or your so-called free will. It depends purely on God's free mercy and grace. Once again, praise be to God. If you are a Christian right now, know that you had nothing to do with it. Read John 3. You don't, you don't aid in your birth. If you're not a Christian, know that you don't have to work or try really hard to make God love you or be good enough so that God will love you. You just believe this gospel. And it's done. It's free grace. See, some of us read this verse, His mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills, and we think, well, this is harsh. I mean, this seems so unfair. And it's hard for us to grasp this concept. But it gets better, I think. And it, we learned... God told Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. Okay? Let me read you something. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. In verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and the spirit, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now, some of you might recognize that. That is from Rahab the harlot who hid the spies of the Hebrew people before they went in to conquer Jericho. Now if you know the story... Rahab, whenever they came in to conquer the city of Jericho, Rahab and her family were spared because she hid the spies. God's name had been proclaimed because of what had happened in Egypt. And, they, and she had heard who God was. And so she hid the spies. And she lived because of that. 
because God's name had been proclaimed. Now I'm going to read you one more from Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Do you see that? If you follow this all the way down, from this line comes Jesus, the Savior. So that very same Rahab who hid the spies, hid the spies because she had heard about the greatness of Yahweh because he, of what he had done in Egypt and hardened Pharaoh's heart. She married a man named Salmon who fathered Boaz who was ultimately the father of Obed, and then Jesse, and then David. And we find out that our Messiah that saved us was born from this line. So here's my conclusion. If God were not sovereign and had not hardened Pharaoh's heart as he does any heart whom he wills, then Pharaoh would have probably given in to Moses after the third plague whenever his magicians couldn't reproduce it. And there would have been no great exodus, no Red Sea. God's name would not have been proclaimed throughout the earth for parting the sea. So the next time that you jump to your human logic to try to say, well, it's not fair that God would save some and harden others. Just remember that if he didn't, you would still be dead in your trespasses and sins because there would be no Jesus. And the death of Jesus for the sins of God's people is the gospel and the gospel is the power of God for salvation and God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel for salvation back to Romans 1. So if you don't believe in a sovereign God, then we have no God at all. He's not righteous. We have no God. So he's either sovereign or he is not God. You see how that works, but he is sovereign. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is so much higher and greater than we can imagine. Our God, just like the song says, our God is higher than any other. He is worthy of all praise, all honor, and all glory. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever.